Church has become the church set in the, the thinking and the philosophy of the age, which says there is no framework because there actually is no God who has spoken to us. So how can anyone know anything for sure? Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. Joining me for a conversation of what it's like to be an evangelical in the Uniting Church, yes, you heard that correctly, is Anna White Atkins. Now, the moment you hear the term evangelical and uniting church, for a lot of people that's going to in Australia, that's going to sound like an oxymoron. So it is worth noting as well for those any international listeners and just for those in Australia who don't know, although I can't imagine how anyone could not know. The Uniting Church in Australia is widely regarded as the country's theologically most liberal church and also its most politically progressive church, which is why it's fascinating to learn that there are evangelicals in this church and actually that these evangelicals are organizing. So Anna, that makes you a mythical beast like Bigfoot or the Phoenix and evangelical in the Uniting Church. I should add as well that Anna was the lead pastor or the head pastor of a Uniting Church congregation in Melbourne you know, what is Melbourne? That's the centre of left-wing everything (laughs) for 10 years. So she is well and truly in this church. So Anna, welcome. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. I don't know if I say long-time listener, you know, first time on the podcast. Yeah. Well, some some people, it's funny, we still have this habit of saying long-time listener, first-time caller, which of course is a throwback to radio. And I, I was it's funny you should mention that. I was thinking of this just the other day and I was thinking, well, what's a modern version for a podcast? I guess it's long time listener, first time speaker. That's it. That's, it. <laughs> like That's that. me. That's me. That's you. Now, Anna, I can't remember now if I mentioned in the intro, but you are involved in something called Propel Network. Yeah. Let's dive in there. Okay. Tell listeners what Propel Network is. Yeah. So Propel Network is um, a relatively new organization. It was uh, set up in 2019, um, sort of, right near the end of 2019, um, as a initially a network of evangelical leaders and churches um, around Australia. Um, in in uh, in one part, it was probably um, prompted into action uh, in response to the 2018 Assembly decision um, on marriage. But that was just really kind of like one element. It was really more a a recognition that there are large numbers of evangelical uh, people and churches uh, within Australia who have sort of felt kind of isolated and they wanted to intentionally kind of connect together um, for the purposes of um, inspiring confidence in the gospel, um, developing young leaders um, and uh, encouraging church renewal and church planting. So it's very much um, and uh, a forward-looking kind of mobilising group. Um, so not so much focused on 
fighting battles, I guess, uh, fighting theological battles, but more saying, you know, we're standing on the same kind of theological and missional ground and we want to be really intentional about, about moving forward for the sake of the gospel. So if I understand this correctly, this is a network of evangelical uniting church pastors and lay people? Is it also Yeah, for and congregations, yeah, yeah. And whole congregations. And basically the, the seminal development here from what I can gather and my inside knowledge of the Uniting Church is pretty much <laughs> very limited. <laughs> uh, this is the first networking or formal organisation of what I take it to be disparate evangelical pastors, congregations, Uniting Church goers to try and organize and pull resources specifically for the purpose of uh, renewing the Uniting Church, what, along evangelical lines? Or you sort of alluded to not wanting to get too much into the theological fight. Is it just to restore a bit of, um, I don't know, orthodox gospel spirituality into... Yeah. Look, there there have um, pretty much always been evangelical networks and organisations within the Uniting Church. I mean, that's one of their um, sort of interesting realities of the church, um, even from, from when it was first formed, when Union occurred in 1977. Um, you know, it was a coming together of, of quite diverse um, churches and and. Uh, churches and leaders from quite diverse theological backgrounds. And um, from pretty early on, there have been different evangelical networks um, with different purposes, I suppose. Um, I think what what makes Propel a little different is that there is, um, you know, taking seriously the the decline in the church, which is, you know, across across the board in denominations, you know, here in Australia and in the West, um, and is pretty uh, catastrophic in in some ways. You could say within the Uniting Church as a you know front runner. Um, so it's taking seriously that situation, um, and so it's it, it's an evangelical organisation that's that is organised around renewal and planting. So that's probably what distinguishes it, say, from other organisations that um, that have existed and that do currently exist. So I have a million questions, but just one thing that's worth clarifying before we move on. So we're obviously using this term evangelical as though it's some unproblematic term that only has one unitary meaning that is incontestable. Uh, what, what, what does it mean when you describe yourself as an evangelical? Yeah. Forget the Uniting Church bit. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because um, I actually find the term to be really challenging. Um, and uh, so while, while Propel uses the word evangelical, like I wouldn't, if I was in conversation with ordinary, you know, an ordinary person in the street, I wouldn't use it because it, there are a lot of hang-ups, I think, um, especially considering, you know, how, how the term is used, particularly overseas, you know, in America and so forth. So, um, but I would say the, the more traditional understanding of what an evangelical is um, really comes down to trust in the authority of scripture um, that, that we um, find our, our authority for what it means to, to be the church, what our faith is, is grounded in scripture that God has revealed himself to us 
um, uh, truthfully and in a noble way through through the Bible um, and the revelation of Jesus Christ through through Scripture. Um, so, I mean, also, and evangelicals, and certainly within the Uniting Church, but I I would say right across the board for those who would define themselves as evangelicals, um, there is a holding to the orthodox tenets of the faith. So we we believe in the triune God. We believe in the revelation of um, of God in Jesus Christ. Um, that that He is um, uh, He He is God incarnate that uh you know we believe in the virgin birth we believe in um his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins and for our salvation we believe in the actual bodily resurrection you know we believe in the ascension we believe um that you know that he is coming again empowering that that those who put their trust in him will also be resurrected you know Kind of good old, good old fashioned Christianity. Good old boring Orthodox Christianity yeah. for yeah. a couple of thousand years. That's right. And to to be honest, um, yeah, like I I actually prefer the term Orthodox. Um, yeah. I think I think that um, is it, it. Sort of it holds us together with two thousand years of church history, and it doesn't have the hang ups that the term evangelical, you know, currently has. Yeah. So the obvious question, I don't know if anyone really knows this, but you could always just pull some figures out of your proverbial if you need to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been. Uh, <laughs> you know, you never know where I hide my figures. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, what sort of percentage of Orthodox, uh, sorry, what kind of percentage of Uniting Church pastors and or congregants would be in this evangelical camp who would sort of share more or less the bedrock theology that you've just yeah. outlined yeah look that is really hard to um to be able to say um partly because um because the the tension within the church um, that has been there really from the start, but it's it's had these key moments of um, kind of rupturing. Um, that because of the tension there, um, what's occurred over the years is this sometimes drip feed and sometimes quite dramatic, um, uh, you know, leaving of, of the church. Uh, by by people that you know would be more orthodox um so it's like over different um different moments of the church's history there's come a like a theological kind of a conflict and people have gone that's my line you know mm -hmm. and they'll step out um so you know in terms of where we're at now it's really state i would say it's state by state um so in Victoria, it's a very, very low number of um, churches and ministers who would put themselves in that camp. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I was I was speaking to someone a couple of months ago who holds a position um, at the sort of synod level. I'm not. I won't say their name, but um, but I was talking to them about the work of Propel and in particular our focus on um, on church renewal and church planting and um, our our desire for people to um, you know 
come to know Jesus and, um, you know, to, to re-engage evangelism in the, in the life of the church. And this person's response was, I am so on board with everything you're saying and I want to help you in every way I possibly can. It's just that I couldn't use any of those words um, because, A, they wouldn't be understood, but, B, those who do understand, like, would probably, like, want to shun me as a result. Do you know, wow. like, so, so basically, evangelism. You can get, <laughs> so, so it's like, uh, it's like evangelism. It's going to sound provocative, but I'm going to say evangelism is like the, it, it is in the context of the uniting church what the N word is to society writ large. It's something wow. that can get you counseled. I think that's possibly, you know, that's further along, but it's, it's more, um, it's like, why would you do that? Yeah. You know, like that's um, we need to respect uh, like other people with other beliefs and, you know, know that the people have different religions and they come from different faith systems. So to be intentionally um, uh, seeking to, to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be actually inviting them into a conversation and a consideration of, of whether or not maybe, you know, that maybe there is a, a, a different call on their life. Maybe there is a God um, who has spoken to us in Jesus and, and that means something for you personally. Mm-hmm. Like to actually be that intentional is considered disrespectful. It's kind of offensive, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this for this, us as Christians, we can speak from our faith tradition, but yeah. we would never want to right step into someone who comes from a different faith tradition and insinuate that that possibly you could think about it and change. So yeah, so I use that as an example because, like, so it's like. There are the evangelicals in the closet. It's so hard oh, right, to know. Yeah. Like in terms of what are the statistics, I wouldn't know because um, I, I think certainly down here in in Victoria, it's uh, it's like a dirty little secret if you <laughs> for some people, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, if you really hold to that, like um, you know, you're you're not going to be promoted through. Um, that's going to be perceived as challenging. Um, yeah. So, whereas, say, if you're in South Australia, um, South Australia is a really different kind of a um, a beast within the Uniting Church. I would say probably seventy five percent of people um, within the Uniting Church would be evangelical, um, and uh, you know, I, I could say numbers like that because they they actually set, are set up a little differently. So they read. So within the Uniting Church, we have like the national body, which is the assembly that's responsible for say decisions on doctrine and so forth. Then the state bodies are known as the synods, um, and they're really more to do with like um, on a practical level, like um, property and and. Um, systems and governance and things like that. And the presbytery are the regional bodies um, within the United Church. We like to talk about how the, um, like the the presbytery is the bishop. So the role of the bishop, say, within the Anglican Church, that's the role of the presbytery or the councils within the presbytery. Um, and then you have the congregations. So, um, 
In, in every other state in Australia, the presbyteries are regional bodies, whereas within South Australia, again, this occurred in, I think, 2019. Um, they, didn't ha- they hadn't had presbyteries for a number of years uh, just because, you know, it's small numbers and big space. But, again, in response to the Assembly decision on marriage, um, a proposal was brought forward that they actually would um, institute new presbyteries and that they be non-geographic presbyteries. Um, so they were opt-in um, and congregations could opt into um, a presbytery basically on, on theological alignment, theological and missional alignment. Um, and so amazingly that was actually passed and they, they didn't want to just have two and, you know, create like clear conflict. So there are three. Um, but the the one that is by far the biggest. So I th- I think the stats are something. There's something like seventy percent of churches in South Australia are in generate presbytery, and they are a clearly evangelical presbytery. So that's you know that's a really different kind of a scenario. Like I look at that from Victoria and go I can't even. It's it's like another world. Um, then Queensland. Again, uh, it's it's geographically kind of aligned. So um, once you get above kind of the sun, the Sunshine Coast, um, in into sort of central and then um, north, you know, far north Queensland, it's much more um, traditional, orthodox, um, evangelical, like by far. Um, mm. Again, I think the far north um, Queensland presbytery is like as a group. Uh, you have pretty much aligned um, theologically, whereas like in the suburban areas, um, I don't know, again, it's hard to know, maybe maybe 50-50, maybe 60-40 kind of progressive to evangelical. I'm, I'm not sure. So there's more evangelicals in Queensland um, than in other pl- places around the world, around the world, around the country. Um, New South Wales Again, there's more evangelicals in New South Wales than there would be proportionally in Victoria, but less that maybe a quarter, maybe. I might. Uh, be, I, I, I am pulling that figure just out of yeah, yeah. my heart. <laughs> out of <laughs> the. Uh, uh, this is fascinating because the picture of painting tells me that there are far more evangelicals in the church than I would have anticipated or guessed and that there's great variety. I mean, the, yeah. the fact that there might be a preponderance of evangelicals in South the South Australian church is yeah. in some ways mind-blowing. I wanted to just come back to the fact that um, I suspect you would agree in terms of the popular perception of the Uniting Church, yeah. it's way to the left of every other yeah. certainly significant Christian denomination, um, and I get the impression that uh, plenty of Uniting Church leaders would not only agree but see that as a compliment and yeah. say, yeah. you know, we're we're way ahead of we're sort of leading where the, the church should go yeah. in their view. Totally, so hundred percent. So it sounds it sounds like one of the interesting characteristics of the Uniting Church is that the levers of power seem to be in the hands of progressives, whereas the demographic size of the evangelicals, you would think it might resemble something more like the Anglican Church with 
where it's hard to know what the exact breakdown is, but part of the struggle in that church is that there are powerful figures on mm. both sides. Yeah. You've got evangelical bishops, you've got liberal Anglo, liberal Anglo Catholic bishops, whole dioceses are evangelical, whole dioceses are Anglo Catholic, some are mixed. Mm. So am, am I right that the leader, it, just generalizing, I know you gave that example of the the um, in the closet evangelical yeah. sort of <laughs> up, up the hierarchy in, in Victoria where you do sound quite frankly, like a besieged <laughs> minority <laughs> in the, the worker stand that, that Victoria has become. But, uh, I mean, am I, am I right that the, the, the sort of liberals, for want of a better term, I'm not sure what term you, you evangelicals or orthodox Christians in the Uniting Church use to describe the, the alternative, but am I right that they, they are very powerful within the church and over its doctrine and its mm. its public image. And if I'm right, my question is, why, how, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely they are. Um, uh, I, I actually think it has a lot to do with um, a lot of the said the characteristics of evangelicalism as, as much as anything else, that, that one of the, the characteristics of um, of evangelical churches and leaders is they're very much on and and like I'm a supporter of this, but I also recognise that there are challenges with it. Um, it's very they've always been very much well. We just need to be on with you know the job. You know we've got to lead people to Jesus. We don't have time to waste. You know like in all these meetings, we don't have time like to to. Um, you know, to be in presbytery or synod or assembly, and um, and like I, I think, I, th- I think this is a historical reality within the church that, uh, not that there've never been any, there certainly have been, um, uh, you know, evangelicals in lots of different levels, but I think there is something in kind of the culture of evangelicalism, which is much more about on the ground in congregational work. Um, you know, trying to trying to do the work of ministry and not and feeling like the 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 bureaucracy and the um, mechanisms of you know the the politics of the church was like a a drag um, and so um, opted out um, and so you know over time that's then meant. There have been vacuums there that have been filled by other people who, who are perfectly happy to be involved in the bureaucracy. Um, you know, I was I was only uh, talking to someone uh, a couple of days ago about the lack of evangelical scholars within uh, within the Uniting Church um, because one of the issues that has you know I, I remember when I was a kid you know hearing my my dad and other ministers talk about um, you know the theological colleges and what they were like and that you know you'd, you'd send people who clearly you know had a real um, heart for the gospel and a passion for ministry and seemed to have a call um, a, you know a vocational call on their life they'd go into theological colleges and come out three years later kind of not entirely sure what they believed anymore. So it's not that they, you know, that they didn't still really love Jesus or trust in him, but it was like the edges had come off. 
Um, and so this was something that I remember, like this is back in, in the 80s and the 90s was being talked about that, oh, you know, the theological colleges. But I was th- reflecting on it this weekend. Well, so over the last 30 years, like why has the evangelical part of the church not actually gone, you know, we actually need to encourage people in scholarships. So so I think, you know, um, there is just this kind of cultural factor that the evangelicals have kind of opted out of high levels of scholarship and of um, engagement with the bureaucracy. And instead what they have tended to do is like on a, like a, at a congregational type level as well as ministerial level, they've sort of kind of fought the battles from the outside or sometimes from within felt um overpowered within the levers of, of power when different decisions were made and then gone, it's all too hard and walked away. Yeah. So like this is from someone who's within the camp. I'm sort of being really honest. That's I think that's more what's happened. So then you get to a place where where we're at now and um and it is an incredibly bureaucratic system. Like it really is phenomenally bureaucratic. So I can really? understand there is a reality of, man, if if I'm going to do that, like that almost has to be my full calling. And, yeah, so the levers of power have definitely been held by by those who like disproportionately are, are progressive. And, and so, you know, I, I see that from um, there's the fault I, on one hand of the evangelicals to kind of opt out. On the other hand, there's been, I, I think it has been a deliberate and intentional and, um uh, kind of organised kind of element by 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 some elements within the the progressive side of the church to 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 cleverly use the levers of power. So you know they they're good um, they're good political players from that perspective. Um, yeah, Anna, you mentioned uh, a couple of times the assembly decision. I think it was in twenty eighteen. Yeah, I assume that had something to do with same-sex issues, was it? But could you just yeah, yeah. For the benefit of us, those of us who don't know, what what was that reference to? Almost since the beginning of um, or the start of union, there has been this um, conversation about sexuality within um, or, you know, within the church and um, questions in regards to um, homosexuality and then as that progressed over the years, um, questions regarding marriage, um, same-sex marriage and so forth. And um, and it, it's this was one of those issues that it, it would come up regularly um, and would come up when the assembly, so that national body would, would meet every sort of three years. So there's lots of discussion papers lots of um, debate, um, resolutions that were passed and so forth. So over the years it was like this issue that was kind of constantly there on like on the back burner and then would, would push forward. And um, so in 2018 when the assembly met, they, they made a decision. Um, uh, again, it wasn't out of the blue but they they made a decision that was pretty much um, launched on the church um, that said that that they kept the old 
and traditional orthodox definition of marriage and marriage service, that, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, and they recognise that that is a faithful biblical interpretation and um, a faithful um, a biblical practice. And then alongside it, they accepted a second um, definition and a second service of, of marriage and said that it, there was an, an equally faithful um, biblically, like biblically faithful um, definition of marriage and marriage service that um, said that marriage could be between two people. So what they basically created in in classic uniting church form is we don't want to actually a hundred percent deal with the issue. So we're just going to put two things that really are opposed to one another. We're going to put them next to each other and say that they're both perfectly fine. And then, um, and alongside that, they they said that um, that you know a, a minister should never be um, pressured by a congregation or people to to accept one or the other. So you know, in other words, you have you have right of conscience, um, but also a church council they could decide. Um, like what their stance was, I guess, and whether or not their buildings could be used for same-sex marriages and and so forth. Um, so yeah, so that decision was made in 2018, and I guess um, you know it comes. It, this comes back to that question of what does it mean to um, to hold scripture as authoritative? Um, what does it what does it mean to stand within an orthodox tradition um where does the church actually you know currently find itself um uh you know as a as a part of a 2000 year um uh history of a church that's held quite particular views on what what marriage is and the purposes of marriage and and family so it's it's it put these two def- definitions together and um and Put it on the church. This is now this is now the position of the uniting church, and so there was a lot um, there was a lot of kind of uh, pushback, I guess. Now, interestingly, say for me, I, I was in Victoria, and um, I, I remember going up to the first Propel conference in 2019. So this is you know not too long after, and I was surprised at the level of emotion that was being expressed by people in particular from South Australia and Queensland. Like there was this um, level of shock and sadness, oh, my goodness, you know, the church has gone down this path, which I actually found really surprising um, because my experience within the church, like in Victoria, was the writing was on the wall like 20 years ago. So um, it was certainly interesting to me seeing the different ways portions of the church were actually responding to it. And I know that there were quite large numbers of people from within congregations um, up in Queensland I'm aware of that ended up just like leaving the church as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, so... So and and there there have been a number of organisations that sort of formed out of this. Um, some 
some have held a really hard line, but others like Propel, it's been more about saying, okay, so this decision has been made and it's more symptomatic of what we see as an underlying um, uh, issue in terms of how we relate to scripture and how we relate to, um, you know, the creeds and how we relate to the wider church, um, taking, taking that as a given that, that we, we think that there is um, a fundamental problem here. We are within this church and we are committed to um, the life-giving call of Jesus for all people. And rather than wasting all of our time and energy on the politics, which has you know, been relentlessly going in one direction, could we maybe, you know, stick on on task and and maybe focus some some more energy on the on the gospel and on renewing churches and on planting churches and leading people to faith in Jesus. So you know that's that's how propel I guess um, chose to respond. So the response is not so much about the issue but more what the issue is reflective of. It's the underlying disease that you want to address. Can I ask Anna? As an evangelical, at the you know working in at the congregational level, so you you led a congregation for mm-hmm. ten years yeah. in Wokistan, like you said, <laughs> or you didn't say it that way, but you know, uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to deny it. It's, not, yeah, it's undeniable. Yeah. The, I mean, what what kind of freedom does an evangelical pastor have in the context of a church, the leadership of which? is moving further and further away from orthodox Christian theology as you and I would probably uh, understand it, at least at the official level. Are you left to your own devices? Is there, just because perhaps of the structure of the Uniting Church, is there a lot of autonomy mm-hmm. at the congregational level? I mean, that that sort of you know, two different marriage services side by side, my, my first reaction was that that seems designed to solve a challenge of division in the church so that yeah. depending on where you stand theologically, you've got one of two options. Yeah, yeah. You can go with, uh, you know, what what do the progressive part ministers, pastors think of people like you? Like what what's it, paint a picture of us in terms of... yeah. What are the constraints, the possibilities, the difficulties? Look, um, you know, I, I have to be honest, um, in in the 10 years that I was um, pastoring, um, you know, here in Melbourne, yes, I, I, I stand in a different place theologically, but um, I, I've actually had phenomenal support uh, by my presbytery in like when, I mean, it was it was a very challenging church situation just generally and and I think that is also a bit of a reality um that that there's a whole bunch of other issues going on within the United Church um so I had phenomenal support by um you know by presbytery ministers and by um you know presbytery councils and you know I mean I'm very grateful for that um I was very clear when I was called in so um you know when when I was first called to the church I like I said no on I think three occasions um and 
um, but but was very specific in as, as we went through these conversations. Um, I was very specific about who I was and what I believed and like where I stood um, theologically on a whole bunch of different issues, um, specifically so that there could never be like a pushback, like we didn't know that about you. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was really, really upfront, both with the um, like the people from the congregation who were part of that um, the the nominating committee, but also with with people from the presbytery. So, so I was a known quantity, um, and I think I think that was really good. So um, I've you know I've I've had very respectful relationships and good friendships, and um, and I think. You know, there is a tendency, evangelicals can tend to be really quite judgmental <laughs> um, and so can progressives. Like I think the judgmentalism is on both sides. Um, so, you know, while I, while I definitely stand in a different place theologically on a lot of issues, um, there, there are a lot of people and a lot of ministers within, you know, the United Church here in Victoria that hundred percent they they love Jesus. They really do. They would hold to a lot of the traditional um, orthodox elements of the faith. Um, uh, so you know it's not necessarily as cut and dry. Yeah. Um, and I think there are there are there are things within the uniting church um, that I that I just absolutely love that I think are real strengths um, that, you know, we might call progressive. So the fact that I, as a woman, I can minister and, um, you know, for the most part, no one's going to bat an eyelid. Um, In fact, it's more likely to be the evangelicals who will have a cultural issue with women being in leadership. So um, it's actually been a very um, welcoming place um, from that perspective. Um, and and I think that that they're on the money when it comes to a lot of other um, important issues of of faith in terms of justice and um, and the environment and things like that. Um, so I, I just want to say that because I think there is a tendency to just kind of pit progressives and evangelicals against one another, and I think that's really unholy. Um, and yeah, so. Um, in, in terms of me in ministry down here in Victoria, it's 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 a funny place. I think that the Uniting Church, I can't really speak for, for other denominations so much, but I do think that the Uniting Church in, in a very large way, it reflects the political reality of, of its environment um, very clearly. So, you know, when I, I mentioned what South Australia is like or what Queensland's like or New South Wales or, you know, Western Australia, um, and here in Victoria, I mean, I can describe the church, but I could also actually be describing the politics, right? So, mm-hmm. um, that's, so I think that's something that, that we actually need to consider. Like, oh, interesting. Is the church more influenced by our culture and politics than we are by the gospel? Yeah, interesting. And I guess the the point you're making, which is a very valid and interesting one, is that the if if you look at the if you like social and political progressivism, mm. talking generalizations yeah. here, of 
your average uniting church member in Victoria, yeah, it reflects the wider generalization That's of right. the average sort of progressivism yeah. of that state. And yeah. of course, the two reputations coincide here. So the, the popular perception, rightly or wrongly, of the Uniting Church is this bastion of progressive theology and politics. Yeah. And of course, Victoria also has the reputation, probably deserved in many ways as yeah. well, yeah. of also being Australia's most socially progressive um, that's you know, community state polity in Australia. Yeah, and that's right. so who who's driving whom here? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're, they're sort of moving in tandem. And what gives credence to that view is the fact that you, you have the counter example of a South Australia and North Queensland, which shows that's right. that, that just, just when you, you know, after the union in 1977, by sticking that uniting church emblem, the black, mm. red and white one, yeah. doesn't doesn't automatically predict where you're going to go theologically no. and politically. So there, there may be greater uh, forces at at work there. But Anna, mm. uh, we've, we've kind of been focusing on the, the evangelicals and I partly ingest, but only very partly ingest, <laughs> keep, you know, I'm hinting or not, not so subtly hinting at the, the sort of woke progressivism of the uniting church and i think you have uh i think i think as you've or maybe you're talking about victoria but uh, i think you would agree that that's an element in the church maybe people could debate how big that element is and i've already learned that the evangelical element there's there's more dynamism and presence there than i had i had realized from the the outside i, I want to ask you to address that, that that issue that those of us outside the uniting church and you've probably or maybe you haven't because you're in the uniting church but, you know it's a bit of a whipping boy when in yeah. conservative christian circles yeah. uh, how much is the caricature justified like how woke does this church go does it actually go further than others or just in the same way that you have evangelicals who are more or less similar to evangelicals in the Anglican Church, the Baptist Church, just to note two others that are actually divided along these along similar lines. But is is there a sense in which the Uniting Church, and, and maybe at the doctrinal level, you could make this argument because the whilst there are similar forces in the Anglican Church that would love to have a a, a marriage service to consecrate same-sex marriages alongside the traditional marriage one. I think their strategy is to go the similar route to the Uniting Church. Yeah. They haven't succeeded yeah. thus far and it seems like there's greater bureaucratic resistance there and, mm -hmm. and your point was really instructive, I thought, about the evangelical uh, element within the Uniting Church really abandoning um whether it was a short-sighted or mm -hmm. well-intentioned, the the power structures, whereas evangelicals do play the power game in the Anglican Church, yeah. which is one reason they do play the politics and they yeah. play it hard, which is one reason why there's this unresolved tension yeah. and, and it hasn't been sorted out doctrinally. I guess this is just the most the, the longest build-up to the simplest question, <laughs> which is I, I want to get an insider's view from someone who's theologically conservative. I don't presume to make any judgments about your politics, but how far left does your church, church go and does it go as far left as critics on the outside like me think it does or are we 
are we mistaken? Well, I think it goes it goes pretty far left, um, and and kind of prides itself on it. To be honest, I mean, I would take issues like that even. Um, uh, outside the church, issues that we would consider to be pretty, um, you know, left like issues to do with, um, say, euthanasia or um, sexuality um, or, um, you know, even issues to do with the environment and climate. So um, the church has, has, has always really been pushing on that left side. So, um, yeah, and, and, you know, I say, you know, those three because I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, you know, the responsibility. As an evangelical, I think that Christians actually should be caring for the environment we should care about climate change and so forth. So, you know, not all left issues are, are bad um, not evil. <laughs> at all. But, um, yeah, I, I, um, but, again, it depends on the synod, right? So here in Victoria... Um, the Victorian Synod um, um, passed resolutions to do with um, euthanasia several years ago. So accepting it, seeing it as com- as completely um, like a, a a a faithful Christian um, you know witness and a faithful Christian position could accept could accept that, as well as a faithful Christian position would. Um, would deny it. So they're, they're playing that game now a lot. Like they will hold two radically opposing positions and say that they're both faithfully, <laughs> you know, faithful Christian um, and biblic, you know, biblical interpretations. And and so I think we've got a fundamental problem there. And I think that's probably where the evangelicals go, you know, you can't actually have two radically opposing views and say that they are both faithful like maybe some things that are like closer than others and there's a bit of gray area you could go yeah like we're we're all kind of in this faithful camp but when they're that radically opposing like we we can't say that they're both that they're both equal um so yeah it, it is pretty it is pretty left i mean it depends excuse me it depends on your on your minister, it depends on your congregation, it depends on, you know, where that congregation is. So, you know, I could name certain suburbs in in inner city Melbourne and you're going to have very, very left positions um, being preached about, you know. So you could look up the websites of, of certain congregations and the sermons you get, you would be hard-pressed to, to work out how on earth it's Christian, you know. So it's much more intentionally political i would say than it okay, is even truly truly christian and then you'd have others that are they are um approaching these issues through a theological you know sort of a and a, and a christian theological lens um albeit progressive um and that looks generally like i would you know if i if i were to boil it all down the the overarching kind of um, most important doctrine that has become elevated is uh, is a a doctrine of well of love. Mm-hmm. So um, everything is about love. So we need to do what what is the most loving thing. Um, so if God is love and that we are called 
to be people of love, which is true. And as an evangelical, I hold that. But then that is then taken and and becomes like the the filter for every conversation. And it looks like being really nice. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that pushes um if you if you're a minister in a church and you are um your your highest goal is to help your people in your congregation engage with political issues through a filter of um we should be loving and kind and nice then at, you know at what point do you say like we actually need to draw the line and say there are some things that god in his holiness says now that's not healthy or life-giving. So it becomes very difficult to do that. I, I, I guess, Anna, that the, the thing with refracting everything through love is that it quickly just becomes acceptance mm, because exactly. it, that, that, that's one, if it's, because think about it like this. So I always go back to the, the family and as a, as a conservative, you can learn a lot of things about things that are natural that come out of the family. So what does it mean to love a child? Well, conventionally, I say conventionally because there are alternative perspectives on this these mm-hmm. days, but for me personally, love, of course, is to be supportive, nurturing, affectionate, um, and all those things for a child. child needs that to flourish. But also some discipline is required. You need to be loving your child. Sometimes he's saying no. I mean, mm-hmm. if your child wants to pick up a spear and start throwing it at his brother or sister, then, of course, you might disappoint him and he might get upset. But that, yeah. <laughs> the loving thing to do would be to say no. And so it, you can see in, in the family context of raising a child, it's a balance yeah. between acceptance, support, loving. And the se- acceptance sometimes is, okay, I accept that you are a certain way that I am not. Perhaps I'd prefer you to be a different way, but because I love you, I'm going to accept you for who you are and you're going to make certain choices in life that perhaps are not my choices or not ones I would prefer. But it's it's balanced with disappointing and sometimes being being tough mm-hmm. because we human beings need that. And I think what, what has happened in a lot of Christianity, and, I, and there's there's a... I call this Nicianity. Yeah, totally. And you, you, I mean, I think your church has really taken Nicianity to the next level. But, yeah. but there are, um, I was trying to think of the version of Nicianity version of Christians, but it doesn't really work. But there are Nicianity believers in the Anglican Church, the Baptists, um, mm. and various uh, other churches. But it's missing that other side of love that in a way comes naturally and, and that I think many people would agree is essential in the most vital loving relationships <laughs> we have, which is between a, a parent and a child. And so it's just become acceptance because to not accept someone's choices or their political views or whatever um, is an act. It's it, it's become construed i would say misconstrued as an act of cruelty yeah. and hate these days yeah. you can't disagree with someone on some topic that's that's hateful yeah if you're a person of love you accept everything no matter what the context or yeah outcome i mean it's interesting you know i'm a parent too and um 
I mean, I hear what you're saying and I, I think the the reality behind it is is that that if we have we have to have a picture of what is good and flourishing. We have to have a picture of of say, you know, if we take that that analogy of parent and child, we have to have a picture of um like what is my job as parent? Is is there actually a standard that I need to be raising my child towards? Or are, are, is there a is there an actual framework that um, you know that there are certain things that my kid actually needs to learn how to do? And of course, I, I think in our culture we're fast saying no even to that. Like it's it's, yeah. it's honest, you know. Parents don't even know. Like there are lots of parents nowadays who are being taught, no, you should never say no to your child. Just let them work it out themselves, and their kids become narcissistic twats. So. Yeah. <laughs> So um, that's the that's the, the scientific uh, terminology for it. That's a political science. Term. Yeah, that's right. But um, you know, if you have a framework that you actually trust and you think is is real and is good, and um, then you're then you're going to um, out of love, you will parent like within that framework. Um, but if you don't have a have a framework, then you're kind of just going to be in that. Um, that world of well, whatever makes you feel good right now, and and if it makes you feel bad, then that must be bad. So we we want to avoid that. And yeah, I, I think that's a hundred percent. That's what's happening culturally, and that is very much what's happening in the church. And I think then, and this really does then come back to that initial question. You know, what is an evangelical? Well, an evangelical is someone who actually believes that there is a framework that we have been given. You know, we have to put work in and to to interpret it correctly and and reasonably in terms of our culture and and our setting now. But we but we don't believe that we're in the dark. We don't believe mm-hmm. that we're just left. You know, reaching out. Um, into a uh, into a mindless universe, trying to come up with our own philosophy of what it means to be a good kind of person. We actually believe that 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 there is a God who has created us. He has created us out of His goodness and out of His love, and that He has designed um, this world and He has designed humanity within it um, to to um, be in flourishing, life giving. Um, relationships and and that he has good intentions for us, but he's also created us in in ways that um, you know when we step outside of it, it causes harm. So you know, an evangelical takes this story of scripture and takes this incredible narrative of God's interaction with humanity through cultures and through histories, and then ultimately you know in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done in you know real time and place history, like an actual event that um, that we we look to and say, wow, God has acted. And and has um, stepped into this world in an undeniable way, and that has ramifications for how we live. And there's a calling on us that we would live in certain ways, because out of the love of God, He's He's called us to life. And so there's framework within which we live. And so you know, as an evangelical, then we go, I'm not in the dark. I have a responsibility. I, I remember, um, you know, an, an older minister, a mentor saying to me years ago when I was sort of starting out in ministry, he said, Anna, your responsibility is to declare the gospel. You know, you don't necessarily have to convince everyone into it. People will make their own choices, but you need to declare what has been passed on to you. You know, it's like the Apostle Paul saying, um, you know, for, for I received um, from the Lord what I also pass on to you. 
Um, so we we have received something and we pass it on. And so we have a framework within which we go, you know, this is what love looks like. This is this is how we then operate and we relate to one another um, because the God who loves us has actually revealed to us what, what brings goodness to us. And so love then creates framework. Um, and sometimes, you know, to use that parent-child analogy, sometimes, sometimes your kids are ticked off at you, <laughs> you know, um, because, you know, when you push up against a, a boundary, then, you know, there, there is that discipline involved um, where we then have to decide, well, what am I going to do with that boundary? Am I going to jump over it and run off into the wild or am I going to realise, oh, that boundary is there for my good and, you know, to help me? And I think the, the real problem that we face in the church, whether it be the Uniting Church or I actually think it's right across the board, is that the church has become complicit in the the thinking and the philosophy of the age, which says there is no framework because there actually is no God who has spoken to us. So how can anyone know anything for sure? All of us are just doing our best. We're just working it out on our own. You know, who are you to tell me or anybody else that, that that's not a good path to choose? I mean, we're all just making it up. And so, you know, and I think ultimately... Unfortunately, I think progressive Christianity is actually like it is, it's been taken hostage by, by that philosophical framework, which says there is no way for us truly to know. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, they might accept scripture or accept the, the, the witness of scripture as, as being wise. So, you know, they'll say, they'll say that within our church, you know, that, you know, there is wisdom that we find here, or we, we might hear the voice of God through it, but um, not in a, a specifically clarifying kind of a way. Um, and so that just, that leaves everyone standing on, you know, on shifting sands. We, d- we don't know what's right anymore. We can't firmly say, actually, you know, if you, if you go down that path, that's going to lead, that's going to lead to, to you know, in a bad direction. So, you know, you know, I guess as evangelicals, we really just come back to the to this ultimate point, like God has actually spoken to us. Mm. He really has. Like he's really stepped in in Jesus and, and there are real accounts of who Jesus is and then of, um, you know, the early church working out what does that then mean for our lives. And, and so we're not actually in the dark. You know, like we've, we've got to work things out in our own culture, yeah. of course, but we're not totally in the dark, so we shouldn't be living as though we are and we should have a bit of boldness about saying there are some things that we can know um, and I think that's what love genuinely looks like. Like love looks like saying there are things I know and I'm going to hold firmly to that in a kind and a gracious way but the kind and gracious way might look like saying no. Yeah, and I, I'm really curious the progressive forces within the church, okay, the church is numerically in decline. Mm. They're really very happy to move with the current of secular culture. Mm. They're even enjoying it. They're like sort of, um, yeah. you know, having a party as the current moves because they, they seem to move with the the majority on all of those types of issues. You mentioned earlier, it was really fascinating the that aversion to evangelism. So there's this kind of 
I don't know if you would call it religious relativism, but there's this broad acceptance. So there's there's not only no need, but it's probably, I imagine, in the minds of some progressives, it would be offensive to try and convert people out of their own alternative, you know, different faith tradition or perhaps why would you even try and convince an atheist? And at some point these all merge in. So so I, I, I wonder two things. One, is the declining church membership seen as a, a problem and is much effort put in on the progressive camp, mm. much thought put into how do we get bums on seats again or is that not no. deemed to be a, a, a big issue? And then the... Yeah. The related question is, what 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 do these people think the purpose of the Uniting Church is in a, a culture in which there are loads of non-religious organisations pushing in the same direction as the Uniting Church? What, why, why do they think the Uniting Church adds something necessary? Mm, yeah, good. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, for your first question. Um, yes, it is something that a lot of thought and a lot of effort is being put into. Um, it's con- it, it's a, con- a cause of concern that there is such a massive decline um, and there is there are discussion groups and discussion papers and there are committees and there are um, you know new uh, new approaches that are that are um, uh, constantly sort of, and, and more frequently um, at work, they're trying all sorts of new things. Um, so, yeah, there, there is a genuine um, sense of concern at the decline and a desire to um, to reverse that, I guess. And, I mean, one, one of the things... One of the things with the Uniting Church, and, I mean, it's both a positive and, and a negative, is that um, it's... it's it sees it's very much an Australian church. It's very connected with sort of the Australian culture, um, and it's uh, it's become quite um, open to sort of contemporary things. So you know they've become very willing to try all sorts of different things. So and even you know down to rules of who can lead and minister and whatever. Um, they're just they're loosening that up in all sorts of ways. So that can be both positive, um, but also you know. It's a negative because they're, they're so closely connected with culture, and um, and in terms of you know what what do people think the church is? I mean, I I, I can't specifically answer that, you know, because there is such a diversity there. Um, you know, there there are there are more people even within Victoria, as I said, like I, I've seen there are more people. Yes, they're they're sort of progressive, but they probably hold a you know other like more evangelical views on things than than what people would expect. Um, so it's just very it's it's very mixed up. Eclectic. Yeah, it's really eclectic. eclectic. And in terms of what do they believe the Uniting Church offers, I think I think there are some people that who are just like so Uniting Church. I mean, they love the Uniting Church. It's it's like the most amazing thing ever. It um, it it's like a shining light. They love the fact that the Uniting Church is always sort of the, the first mover on progressive issues, you know, like we'd already made decisions about 
whatever, you know, they name your issue, the Uniting Church has made a statement on it. And and um, for some people that's like the, there's a lot of energy that's in that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think with it as well, like I, 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 I would really not want to, to give the impression that, um, and I think sometimes this can be, um, the case, you know, evangelicals can kind of reflect on progressives as though they don't actually have a faith. They they really do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's genuine faith there, and genuine faith, you know, for many, I, I wouldn't say all, but for most, you know, in Jesus, and they'll they'll um, hold to some of that. And they they do believe in God. They do believe in the Creator God. Um, it, but it's issues to do with revelation and whether God has really spoken to us in in a unique way, like a genuinely unique way in Christ and in a unique way in Scripture. That's where they get a bit fuzzy. So, I, you know, I, I think that they, that they do see the Uniting Church as being really like an important gift to the community um, and, and, you know, that there's a that there's a voice, especially a voice for justice and justice issues, that um, is really important. And and I actually agree with that. There's you know, we can we can name some of the the more extreme progressive things that the Uniting Church has accepted that I completely disagree with. But on the other hand, you know, they have been front runners in really important issues, say to do with you know women's equality or to do with. Um, uh, immigration or refugees um, and, you know, incredibly important and very biblically based as well um, in, in, you know, issues to do with justice and um, treating people with dignity and and so forth. So, you know, there there is a real voice that is there, but unfortunately I think that the dynamic um, encounter with the life of God in worship is kind of missing. Um, in a lot of places, and and that genuine belief that people um, need to come into personal faith um, in God through Jesus Christ, and and the dynamic life of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person, like that's that's kind of words. And so when you don't have like that, the life and relationship with God, then all you end up having are, are good deeds. You know that that's fascinating. I, that a lot of that resonates with with me too. Although I am theologically and politically conservative, I know plenty of progressive Christians, mm. progressive non Christians, non Christian yeah. conservatives. But yeah. but I've actually worked with in different contexts progressive Christians. Uh, well, I would call them progressive. You know, Catholic, yeah. Anglican, Baptist, and the it's interesting because that there are there are if you like two hypocrisies on the left and the right, mm. and then there's something that's held in common on the center left and center right, just to use the horrible conventional yeah, yeah. spectrum. And the the hypocrisy is actually different. So if you go far enough to the on the progressive spectrum in Christianity, you will find people who really don't believe yeah. Yeah. much at all yeah. of that could be uh, their their lack of belief in core doctrines at some point does make them a non-Christian on, according to the other 90% of the spectrum, including many on the the left-hand side of it. What you get on the right is people always profess to believe, but you get people who don't live it. Yeah. 
That's and so the, the hypocrisy there is that you, you realize that behind the scenes, some of these people who have great theology are just horrible human beings. Yeah. And you, you wonder again, at what point yeah. are we entitled to conclude this person just hasn't been transformed by redemption yeah. <laughs> at all? Has this person actually yeah. become a, a Christian or is this some kind of strange power yeah. ideological thing? Yeah. What, I find, what I find in the sort of bigger mass is, there are people who I, I I have very firm disagreements with on theology and how to read scripture and we have different political views, but I, I see people who are really motivated by their Christianity. That is, it's they'll use terms like the it's the gospel instructs me to focus on X, X, Y, and Z. And that there's no denying the genuine yeah motivation and inspiration and dedication of of a life i think yeah. some of it's tragically misguided but then again they would think the same thing about my yeah. my my own politics but I, but there's genuine intention and good faith on wow. on both sides and then the other thing is you you get these very you can often be surprised so i think conservative christians particularly evangelicals pride themselves on certain supernatural touchstones, you know, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And to be fair, at the progressive ends, and you get a lot of wobbliness on the bodily re resurrection of Christ. You've probably encountered this, no doubt, in yeah. the Uniting Church. You know, you get these really painfully convoluted and tortured responses to, you know, what happened at the resurrection. But then you can get the, these other areas of supernatural belief that again reveal just how 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 sincere the the belief is it's just different so to give one example I had a recent conversation with someone who is an anglican priest in the liberal anglo catholic tradition definitely not a conservative not a progressive more of a sort of center left old school labor voter who has some conservative views because the other thing i always find not so much on the right, I, but on the left, you find that, that people I would describe as progressives, particularly Christians, can have really um, conservative views on one issue. Yeah, you know, they might they might be progressive right down the line, and then massively pro life for some reason, or they yeah. might be something else. But uh, I, I I was curious, and I I asked this guy because the the communion is the key sacrament that drives the mm. Anglo-Catholic yeah. ecclesiology in the Anglican church. And I I, I was, I had assumed, well, I hadn't assumed, but I suddenly realized actually I'm not clear whether a lot of Anglo-Catholics actually go the Catholic route. Yeah. They are Anglo-Catholics yeah. and believe in that the the bread becomes the body of Christ. So I asked this guy, he's like, oh, yeah, of course. Like that, mm. that's why it's so central. And I'm like, mm. oh, wow. Like yeah. from a secular society point of view, that immediately makes this person who's on a different side of the, the theological spectrum for me yeah. just as much a nutter as someone that believes in the unambiguous bodily resurrection of Christ. This guy's believing wine is turning into blood yeah. and yeah. bread is becoming. And so we're, we're all super – you forget sometimes that there are, there are these commonalities. So we're supernaturalists and he will, of course, justify his view like Catholics do and I've got plenty of Catholic friends, uber conservative, uber left. Yeah. So that that that's, you know, the, the reality is always more complex. And I think actually you've done a good job 
even though you you have a you are have your own situatedness, terrible term, <laughs> within the <laughs> uniting church, I think you have brought out for me, and I'm sure many listeners, just that the the diversity, which ultimately is always there when we're dealing dealing with large numbers of human right. beings and geographical differences yeah. and the like. Yeah, you know, I, I appreciated what you said um, in terms of contrasting say the far left and the far right within the church because I think that's that's really really important and um it's probably why you know right at the beginning of the conversation I said that I'm I'm actually I find the term evangelical challenging and I prefer to refer you know to myself say as orthodox because there there can be um I've certainly experienced like a tendency to like among those who would be like evangelical and and those who are quite far right, like there there can be this this real like emphasis on we've got to like nail the doctrine and be like this is what we believe, and and anyone who steps out even just a little bit, bang, you're gone, and yeah. you're not actually a Christian. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't accept. Like there's there is a um. Yeah, there's there's a, a hardness about that which which I don't see in the likeness of Jesus. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, like I really want to avoid any sense that you know it's oh, all the people on the left are the problems because I'm probably a whole lot more left leaning in in many ways than than a lot of evangelicals. I mean, I'm you mean in terms of politics rather than <laughs> theology or both? Probably both. Um, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm both. I'm like you said, like I'm, I'm this jumbled mix of left and right. And I think probably that's actually what a Christian should be, right? Like it's not, it's, it's Jesus who should be on our, on our hearts. And it's the, the, the trust in, in Jesus as Lord, not, you know, left or right as Lord, um, that should be the defining characteristic. But, you know, I think on the left, there's a tendency to, to, um, sort of head into wob- wobbly um, theology, um, but emphasizing certain deeds. Whereas on the right, there's a there is a tendency to to get so sharp and so hard mm-hmm. with theology. But then what that looks like in practice, like it, um, you know, I, I was speaking at a um, an event on the weekend and was talking about just just very briefly about about the gospel and about the fact that um, actually the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ has got to be bigger than just me being forgiven for my personal individual sins, you know. And there is this tendency within evangelicals to so narrow the scope of what Jesus has done, like we narrow it down until it seems to reflect much more of an individualist, consumerist approach to life than it does you know the 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 broad expansive generosity of god that i actually find in scripture so you know there is this tendency to to be super hard on doctrine and to be super narrow with what jesus has done rather than oh actually the the declaration of the gospel of the kingdom of god is is hope and is life um for all people who would respond in faith to jesus and and then that has to outwork in the in lives of justice and lives of holiness and and lives of truth um, and love and um, so it has to look like something that seems to reflect a bit more of God than just our our particular political leanings. 
you know, there's an iron here, Anna, which is just just in the same way that elements of the Uniting Church, and again, I just reiterate virtually every church, yeah. you, you find them even in the Orthodox Church, surprisingly. There yeah. are these pockets yeah. of, you know, progressive reformers. They're certainly in the Catholic Church, and we just take it for granted they're everywhere in the, yeah. in the Protestant Church. Yeah where those tensions are much more at the surface and open. The the irony is that just in the same way at the Niceanity, workianity end of the spectrum, that there's a clear influence of some sort. Maybe it's running in both directions, but there's there's you can see the church and doctrine bending and moving and reforming into something that resembles the shape of a whole bunch of secular ideas. But there, there, is, there is at least one instance of this in uber-conservative evangelicalism mm. that is that, that uh, a lot of evangelicals are unaware of or not live to, and that is the radical individualism, That's right. which I don't think was there actually in the Reformation because individualism didn't really, didn't really exist as a yeah. sort of... In, in, in the, the, the modern sense, that's anachronistic. But that rampant individualism is a very secular yeah. post-enlightenment idea that you won't actually find in the social, spiritual world of first century Palestine into which right. God became yeah. a man. And there, there's, this, there's this unawareness and it's like, it's like, it's like all things. It's not, it's not that you know, obviously individuals have rights and I actually think there are some benefits there but it's the unchecked uncritical yeah and even unconscious embrace or being shaped by what I would regard as a secular individualism yeah which which can only can it's because evangelicals have come in different shapes and sizes and varieties it can really produce this very narrow theology where god is concerned with your soul and not much else yep. so it's like he we're supposed to believe he creates this not just world but entire cosmos and universe and all the animal species but apparently and, he doesn't care about that apparently all he's worried about is is in you every one of the yeah. you know seven billion individual individuals and 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 in this kind of almost legalistic way because yep. um Evangelicals, the further right you go, they they're what I would call touchstone Christ, Christians. Mm-hmm. They need to see very specific evidence in a couple of very narrow touchstone areas mm-hmm. to know if you're sound. That's right, or not. Yeah. And I did I did want to actually ask when you know you raised the um, I've forgotten the very nice term you use now, but the the sort of hard the sharp yeah let's call it sharp evangelicalism. Does the evangelicalism in the Uniting Church does it go into those most conservative elements that you find in Anglicanism and Pentecostalism and Catholicism? Yeah, no, I, I haven't really seen it. Um, and um, and I think that's, um, well, actually, no, there probably are some thinking probably more up in Queensland that there are some people that maybe are heading a bit in that direction. Um, but it's it's unusual. So, you know, when, when the Uniting Church is healthy, Far out. It's it's actually great, <laughs> and um, and there is that yeah. It's it's not like the evangelicalism isn't sharp sharp. It's not 
um, it's not abrasive. It's not, um, it's not about cutting people off. Um, it is, I think, uh, more um, wholesome. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, having said that, I'm, uh, you know, like there, there, are, there is a fair amount of autonomy um, and independence in a lot of congregations. So depending on where you go, you know, you'll see different things. But, no, it doesn't tend to be super sharp like what you might get like you say, in Pentecostals or or Anglican churches or whatever, where yeah. it's like the doctrine cuts like a knife and uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well, this actually brings me to my, my final question, Anna, because I think it's a question uh, evangelicals who like to wield their doctrine like a sharp knife, if not a sword mm. or a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> might, might be... Wondering, but just just a slight preamble to to get there because we, we didn't even dive into the history. We just assume everyone everyone knows. But you, but this is germane to the question. You have spent your, well, let's just say your whole life. Uh, I mean, you may not have always been involved in specifically uniting church, but you were almost quite literally born into the uniting church mm-hmm. because it it did. The uniting church was a union between the, the entire Methodist church some Presbyterian congregations and some Congregationalist congregations. Mm. That's an awkward thing to say. (laughs) In 1977, you were born in 1977. Yeah. Usually I don't expose the... things happen at the same time, you know. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a little unpolite to out someone's age, but I was born in 1976, which makes us a similar vintage of the best generation ever known to humankind, which is, and particularly the best part of that generation, That's which it. is the, the the late 70s tail end of Gen X. That's it. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, listeners, particularly those who are not Generation X, are probably sick to death of me. <laughs> but we know it's true. <laughs> I know. Well, you, you and I know, know it's true. Uh, so, and your father was a, was a Methodist minister, yeah. an evangelical, mm-hmm. and one day he suddenly finds himself part of this new thing called the Uniting Church, which happens to be the year uh, that you were born. So you're born into an evangelical Methodist family, I guess, that's now in the Uniting Church. Here you are working for a Propel Network. You yourself led mm. a Uniting Church for 10 years. So you're, this church really does coincide with your life and, and your life is intertwined with it in the most intimate of ways. So the, the thing I think some uh, sharp evangelicals might wonder is you're in your 40s now. Why are you still in this church and how can a real evangelical <laughs> still be there when you have options yeah. like, like, okay, sure, you wouldn't be able to um, preach at a church in Sydney, but there are evangelical Anglican churches in Melbourne and other parts of yeah. Australia where you know you could you could go. So why why have you remained committed yeah. to the Uniting Church as an evangelical? What would you say to people who say, "Well, that that compromises you in some way"? How, how can you be in this? Well, um, I I had quite a number of years out of the Uniting Church. So when I was like a late teenager, um, I I so my my dad was no longer ministering in a in a church that I was at. He was doing other things. So I I 
left and I actually went to a Pentecostal church for a few years. That was an eye-opener. Um, <laughs> um, and then then I, I was back in an evangelical uniting church in Sydney for a few years and then my husband and I moved down to Melbourne so I could study. Um, and then we were in a, a, a large um, evangelical church, the Christ Church, for about 11 years. So I have had, I did have quite a lot of time out of it. Um, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, I went to a Christian school and there are lots of Sydney Anglicans, you know, there and um, and others. And and I remember like when I was a, a kid and a teenager and I would meet people, at, you know, who were Christian, they'd, oh, what church do you go to? I'd say, I'd go to, you know, this Uniting Church. But it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> not that sort of Uniting Church. You know, we're evangelical. Like I'd, I'd have to go through this whole thing of describing who we actually were. So that was my growing up experience and I was quite happy to to leave it and then discovered, oh, isn't it fascinating that there are a lot of unhealthy dynamics and bad theology and bad practices in lots of other denominations as well. So, all right, that's, isn't it interesting? The doctrine of sin is true. (laughs) (laughs) It Um, is universal after all. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so... Even like I didn't expect to come back into the Uniting Church, but I, I will say this: for years, um, whenever so we used to do road trips all the time. So we, you know, drive from Melbourne to Sydney or wherever, um, and you'd go through these little country towns, and you always see the churches, and you can tell by the architecture, like they used to be Uniting Churches. Like, you know, that was originally Methodist, or that was Presbyterian, or whatever, and now it's a yoga studio, or a, you know. <laughs> Generally, it's that, um, or a cafe or something, and and it used and it, and it still does. It breaks my heart, you know. I I go through these towns and see, you know, evidence of where there were people's faith who they prayed and they worshipped God and they they gave because they they believed that every person in this country um, needed to hear the gospel. You know, that was the great Methodist kind of drive. You know that that um, they sent preachers out literally everywhere um and and I would drive through like for years I would drive through and I'd see these churches and I'd end up in tears and I'd end up like just praying and like interceding for the church and praying that um that God would have mercy on us and that he would raise up leaders and um and so it it was like it just in particular the Uniting Church it still it, it had this hold on my heart and I think because in those really formative years for me, like I came to know Jesus in the Uniting Church. Um, I was I was taught who he was. I was taught how to read the Bible and I discovered um, how valuable I as a, as a female was to God in a Uniting Church. And I was given opportunities to preach when I was young in a Uniting Church. And, um, uh, you know, some conservative... Um, people might find the next bit hard. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in a uniting church. Like I had encounters with God that were real and that were precious and that that were vital, um, you know, within the uniting church. I was baptized as a believer in the uniting church. Um, like all these really key like moments of my life happened within the context of a live, Jesus-loving um, you know, spirit-empowered, Bible-believing, uniting churches. You know, I am who I am because of the faithfulness of God working through faithful people within the uniting church. So, you know, back in in 
um, 20, end of 2011, 2012, when um, I was approached by this particular Uniting Church um, to come and minister there. So I, I wasn't within the Uniting Church. I'd been doing ministry outside. And I, I was kind of, I came in kicking and screaming. <laughs> So for those conservative um, listeners who are like, you know, compromised, rah, 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 like all I can say is I actually believe scripture, which says that Jesus is the head of the church. And, um, and like I, I challenge you to show me a single denomination that isn't filled with sinful people who have bad theology at some point. Like, and yet, and yet God is at work in all those places. And he is still at work in the uniting church and there's, like, and he he makes himself known and present to people through there, and he called me in. That's <laughs> simple. As and that. I obeyed, you know. So it's as, it really is as simple as that. Um, and you know, and I'm I'm thankful. It's been challenging. Like it is challenging, but um, but then I've I've done ministry in other churches as well, and it's challenging there. So. Yeah, <laughs> you already had a few war scars, so you're you're battle hardened. I was and prepared to come in to the Uniting Church, Anna. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story and sharing your insights and observations and reflections on the Uniting Church. I found it uh, really illuminating, and I thank you. My pleasure. It's been so good. Been good to actually meet you and talk in the flesh. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs>